Welcome to Jury File. My name is Rona, and this is where we share certain cases that Jury File is currently working on. We do not share sensitive case details or information that we feel is damaging to the case or the ongoing investigation. You can find Jury File on most podcasting platforms, as well as YouTube, Facebook, Twitter, Reddit, and Instagram. In this episode, we will be speaking to John Palmer, who lost his wife, Katie Palmer, on April 21st, 2020. The details that you will hear are extremely upsetting, or at least they were to me. I believe that Katie's story should be told in mass and as often as possible. John Palmer has fought for justice for over two years now. When you hear him speak about Katie and about what happened to her, you can still hear the raw emotion two years later. After telling this story countless times, it's still on the forefront of his mind, daily. Katie was a Denison, Texas middle school science teacher. Those who knew Katie described her as passionate, bright, and a positive energy. Katie was very much loved and respected. She was also seen as a community leader, and most importantly, she was also a mom. On April 21st, 2020, Katie did not start out the day normally. She typically liked to sleep in a little longer than her husband, John, but on the morning of April 21st, Katie decided to join John for a morning walk. She wanted to go show him the killdeer birds that were nesting nearby. But both John and Katie would be struck by a vehicle while on their walk that morning. And Katie's injuries were fatal. John was also badly injured. John describes this incident as allegedly being a drunk driving incident from a driver that local law enforcement knew well. Law enforcement seems to disagree about that. But I think the data in this case speaks for itself. In this episode, we'll hear from John and allow him to tell his story of what happened that day. And then we'll be back soon with a second episode reviewing the data in this case, the body cam footage, and everything that's been done to try to create justice for Katie Palmer since April 21st, 2020. If you're interested in Katie's case, you can also follow updates regarding the fight for justice on Facebook and also Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok. All of these profiles are managed by the family of Katie Palmer. Now let's allow this story to be told by the most loyal advocate for Katie Palmer, her husband, John Palmer. Would you like me to start from the very beginning? Of course. Okay. So the night before on April 20th, 2020, um, I told my wife, Katie Palmer, that I was going to work out in our backyard and then probably go for a walk before I went to work. And she told me to wake her up um, that that morning, uh, the morning of the 21st, and she'd go walk with me. And she ne- she never did um, go walk with me in the mornings. So kind of rolled my eyes and said, you know, yeah, sure, I'll, I'll wake you up. So um, that morning I went and worked out in our backyard. And um, I 
called her or sent her, sent her a text to see if she wanted to, to go walking with me. And uh, she didn't answer. So walked in the house, woke her up, asked her if she wanted to come walk. Um, she said she didn't. And I reminded her that, you know, she asked me to um, wake her up and that she wanted to go walking. So she got up, she got ready. Um, we have two kids, uh, Bella and Brandon. And I went to go wake up Brandon, who's the youngest. Uh, he usually got up before his sister. This is at the beginning stages of um, COVID. So um, the kids were not at school. They were doing remote learning. So Brandon usually got up before Bella and I just let Bella sleep in, told Brandon that his mom and I are going to go for a walk. And um, sometimes he would come with me. And I've said this many times. I'm so thankful that he decided not to. Um, wow. Katie and I started our walk at about 7.30. And we live outside the city limits. Um, we live on a country road. No, no sidewalks. Um, pretty much a... It's not a concrete road, but a, like an asphalt paved road. That's about a half a mile long. And um, that's where, that's where we'd, we'd walk. So we headed out um, west on Glenwood Drive, which is the road that we live on. Um, headed out west, started walking. We got to um, an old golf course that um, is right by our house. We would usually cut through that golf course. There's some um, uh, cart paths that, that we'd walk on. Um, but there was some dew on the ground. She didn't have to log in to teach her students till 9 or 10 o'clock. And I think, well, she, I, I know she was going to go back, back to sleep uh, for 30, 45 minutes. So she didn't want to get her legs wet. So we decided to keep on walking alongside the roadway. And um, we went almost to the end of um, Glenwood Drive, and there were some undeveloped lots. And she said that she saw some killdeer there um, a couple days before. And I don't know if you're familiar with birds, but kill, killdeer are a bird that will nest on the ground. Yes. Uh, that's a bird that she studied in, in college. Um, she was big into ornithology. So we looked over these undeveloped lots and um, didn't see any killdeer and asked her if she wanted to keep on walking. And she said, no, let's just go ahead and turn, turn back. I said, oh, okay. So we turned back and so we were heading, so we were heading west down Glenwood and then we were heading east back home. Okay. And we were heading east and we were facing traffic. Um, facing any traffic that would be approaching us. Um, and as we got about two tenths of a mile from, from our house, um, that's when our neighbor, Corey Foster, um, crossed over the roadway and hit us both from behind. Um, he hit us approximately 70 feet. Um, Hit us so hard that he knocked us out of our shoes. And as I was being pro projected onto the golf course, um, 
I could see his truck out of my peripheral vision, seemed like we were going about the same speed. I hit the ground and I immediately knew that we had been hit. Tried to get up, I couldn't get up. It felt like there was a ratchet um, around my midsection and it was tightening. And I looked over and that's when I saw Katie. Um, Katie was propped up on her left elbow and she was looking in my direction, but not at me. She was looking right past me and she let out this, um, this moan, this painful moan, at which point I started to yell for somebody to call the cops, call the police, call the cops. Um, I started to crawl over to Katie because I, I couldn't walk. And, and no one, no one is out there with you guys at this point. It's no, uh, it's just Katie and I and um, Corey Foster. At which point Corey started to say that he didn't know it was me, and he identified me by by name. Said John, I didn't know it was you. Um, I, I couldn't see. I was trying to clear off my my windshield. And I'm just yelling for somebody to call the cops. And I make it over to Katie. And she's, like I said, propped up on her left elbow. Um, later down on her back. And um, at, at that time, one of our neighbors um, drove by and stopped. And... Um, she had come down to where Katie was, um, like moments after I, I, I got to Katie and, um, she was very calming, very calm voice. The whole, the whole time I was trying to get Katie to breathe. She was not breathing. And then finally she took a deep gasp of there and I thought, Oh my gosh, we're, you know, whew, she's breathing. And then it was a very labored breath about every 12 to 15 seconds. Then I noticed that she wasn't blinking and, um, her eyes were fixed. Her eyes were staring straight up into the sky. And I, uh, was just begging her not to leave me. And um, Corey had gotten a hold of 911, and I heard the sirens starting to uh, blare. And it was just Katie, I, and my, my neighbor. Um, and uh, we both were just telling her to hang on, hang on, helps, helps on, on its way. Um, wow. Corey tried to hand me my cell phone, which had been broken and bent so I could call somebody. And I just threw it away. Um, tried to give me some water while I'm sitting here trying to care for my wife. The paramedics and the fire department showed up uh, in what seemed to be, um, I mean, it, it seemed to be fairly quick. Uh, they started to work on Katie and then they asked me if I'd gotten hit because I was just laying right down next to her. And I told them that I, that I had and that I couldn't walk. Um, I was loaded up into an ambulance and um, 
I had heard them saying that they needed to get a helicopter out on, on scene. That's the, that's, that's the last time I saw Katie that, that day. After that, Tarif Al-Khatib, um, who was the DPS officer that was in charge of that investigation, came into the ambulance, asked me questions, um, which is all on the body camera footage, um, and told me that um, he was going to take, take care of it. He was going to take care of it. Um, I was sent to Texoma Medical Center in uh, Denison, Texas, and uh, my, my wife's body was flown to Plano, Texas, to a trauma center. She was later declared dead 1 a.m. the following morning. Oh, so she she made it a little while? She didn't. That's the only time that they could perform that test. I believe Katie died there on scene. I believe they were doing their best to try to keep her alive. Uh, she was declared brain dead. Um, I had a brother in the same situation um, at the end of his life. I, I totally, totally understand that. It's a horrific experience to have to go through. Um, but yeah, you're, you're probably right about that. They told me that the, the impact of um, her head hitting his hood. So her body wrapped around his truck and her head um, hit the hood of his truck and the swelling um, caused her brainstem to snap. And they said that that was probably a very, said it probably happened very, very quickly. Yeah, I Um, would imagine. So that was that, that day. And, um, you know, my, my kids, um, I was at the hospital about an hour or so away. Couldn't be there for my kids when they went to Plano to go say goodbye to their mom. And that was, um, wow, that's, that's hard. That's hard. I mean, mainly difficult. Yeah. Um, how long did it take you to recover from all of your injuries? I was at the ICU for a day. I, um, fractured vertebrae in my back, broke three or four ribs, had some internal bruising of organs. And, um, they wanted to keep me there for a couple more days. And, um, I asked to be checked, checked out. i couldn't stay in the hospital i couldn't stay stay in the hospital um for better or worse i would have i would have done the same thing not be with my kids you know that wasn't wasn't going to get any better laying laying in a hospital bed um i've i've got a bed at home um right and i needed to be just wanted to be with them so yeah yeah so from from there um you you were reunited with your kids and i imagine there was a is katie close with her family extremely close um she talked to her dad on the phone every single day and um her mom was her best friend and they were around each other every day 
Um, I've, I've said this numerous times. Um, Katie uh, is very family centric and uh, loved to be around family and family was always first. Um, she, she came from a, a big close family, just love being, being around them. Um, yeah. And they, they, they have been, they have been tremendous through, through all of this, um, you know, from April 21st, 2020 and on, you know, she, she was a fantastic woman, um, fantastic human being. And, uh, that's just the result of, uh, the type of family that, that she had growing up. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, that's just so, so difficult. And I mean, you can't even say difficult or unfortunate or it just doesn't sum it up at all. Um, especially when you have people out there that, that do such heinous things and then you have an incredible person like that. Um, that's gotta be really, really hard for all of you. I mean, I know that for you as well, but I, I'm just the whole collectively her family and, and I'm sure that she has a ton of friends as well. So I, I just, I definitely feel for what you're going through with this. This is just excruciating. Let's pause for a moment. Hearing the details that John describes about the day that him and his wife were struck by a vehicle while just taking a walk together on a random morning when they do not normally do that together. Those details alone are extremely difficult. To hear that Corey was someone that they all knew in the community. But the story goes much farther than that. And what you'll hear will become even more difficult when you hear what happened from the time that they were struck by the vehicle until they were both taken to separate hospitals where John would be separated from his children who would have to say goodbye to their mother and deal with his own injuries. These are very, very difficult details, but as I mentioned, it gets a lot more difficult to hear than that. Let's go back to my discussion with John, and now we're going to discuss what happened regarding law enforcement, first responders, and the driver that hit him and his wife. So, and this is based off of body camera footage. This is based off of uh, Trafe Al-Khatib's um, major crash investigation packet. And this is also based upon a third party uh, crash recreation report uh, that was commissioned by Grayson County. Because for some reason, the Texas Department of Public Safety um, didn't care enough to recreate this accident. Doesn't, su doesn't surprise me at and all. I I'm not going to call this an accident. Um, uh, this incident, um, okay. because this, this was, this was no accident. This was a series of, um, horrible choices made by one man, uh, that resulted in the death of Katie Palmer. So this, this was no accident. This was an incident, uh, that was caused by the recklessness of, uh, Corey Foster. Um, okay. um, before you get into that, I wanted to ask one question real quick. 
about how long were you and Katie out there on the ground before law enforcement showed up, do you think? How many minutes do you think passed? Before law enforcement or or before first responders? Well, first responders. Um, anybody, um, anybody who would have been an eyewitness or had a body cam? Oh, well, I'd say maybe... seven to ten ten minutes maybe okay. i mean okay. like the 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 um the fire department and the emts got there fair fairly quickly so um but they didn't have body cameras on dps we were hit at about seven forty-five. uh tarif alcatee didn't show up till eight fifteen. oh okay and um Something really interesting about that, um, I was told that a shift starts around 6. Tarif was still at his house, and his house is a whole lot closer to us than uh, where the um, Sherman station is for um, the highway patrol. So Really? Not sure why he was still at his, his house, but um, he got the call at 7.55 and was on scene 20 minutes later. In fact, the helicopter the medical evac helicopter that took katie to plano uh beat him there what yeah so uh tarif absolutely took his time i'm not sure what he was doing i, I guess he had to get dressed and come <laughs> out on on scene um I, I i don't know in 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 his lackadaisical attitude in showing up on scene um definitely did not um <laughs> did not quit um the investigation and i'd like to throw that up in quotes that that he did was um subpar at best so okay yeah it doesn't sound like there was much of an investigation to be quite honest okay no. i'll i'll let you pick up now where you were headed i apologize i just wanted to make sure i understood about about what the time frame was there yes ma'am so um cory foster left his house and his from where his driveway is to where we were hit uh, is approximately three tenths of a mile. Um, the report, the crash report that was completed by Corporal Tarif Alcati with the Texas Department of Public Safety uh, states that Foster told him that he couldn't see uh, when he left his driveway. So he couldn't see, and he was driving a um, six-ton truck, drove three-tenths of a mile, and if he was going the speed limit, which is 30 miles an hour, uh, it would take him approximately 38 seconds to get from where his driveway was to where um, he ran over my wife and hit me as well. So he, again, drove blindly for three-tenths of a mile uh, due to condensation on his windshield as what? a result. Correct. Okay. Uh, <laughs> he could not clear the fog off of his windshield. Um, so okay. he decided to keep driving. Um, with that, he was also on his phone um, and he was in the process and we found this information out through civil discovery through our civil lawsuit. 
the only timeline that we could come up with is that he was dialing a number um, as he was driving that caused him to cross over the roadway, which he couldn't see anyway because he was blind and um, hit both Katie and I. Um, when he got out of his, his, um, his truck, he still had the phone in his hand. That's when I started to yell for somebody to call the cops. Corey identified me, told me he was sorry. He didn't know it was us. Uh, he'll go on to later state that he thought he hit a telephone pole. Um, I yelled at him to call the police, call the police. He had his phone in his hand. He ended the call and two seconds later dialed 911. He was on the, on the phone trying to get a hold of some uh, men that were going to help him do some work that day. So after Corey hit us, um, I've already, you know, I've already went into um, what happened af after that. Um, so after Corey hit us, approximately 30 minutes later, Tarif Al Al-Khatib with the Texas Department of Public Safety casually comes on, on scene. When he first talks to Corey, he mentions to Corey numerous times that he smells like he's been drinking. Now, this is probably 8.35 in the morning, and he's already identifying that Corey Foster smells like he's been, he's been drinking al alcohol. Um, ask Corey how many drinks he had, when did he stop. Corey tells D DPS that um, he stopped drinking at 7, that he stopped drinking at 8, that he stopped drinking at 9, and that he doesn't remember when he, when he stopped drinking. Um, said he said he only had uh, five whiskeys the day before, which is odd because you have five drinks the day before. I don't think that you're going to wake up the next morning and reek of alcohol. Uh, yeah, no, that, that doesn't work that way. It doesn't make any sense. So um, Tarif then uh, asked Corey to participate in some field sobriety tests. Corey was told to walk a line. Tarif stated that uh, he, he passed that, that test. Uh, I've given you all of that footage, so please feel free to review that as well. Um, oh, yeah, absolutely. He didn't look too sturdy on his feet on the um, dash cam. Um, he then had Corey uh, perform a horizontal gaze test, and I know you know what that is. It's where they hold their finger out, and you have to track the finger back and forth. And in which, and I want you to remember this, um, he stated that Corey had zero out of zero clues on the horizontal gaze test. Okay, that's very important. Zero out of zero clues. Um, after he completed that test, uh, he then was told to do the one-legged stand where you stand on one leg, you hold your other foot forward, and you keep your hands at your sides. Uh, Corey failed that, that test. Corey was shaking so bad that, I mean, it looked like he was having a seizure. He was shaking so bad, trying to keep his arms by his side, didn't make it to th 30 seconds, and uh, fell over onto his other leg. So he failed that, that test. Somehow, Tarif, I believe, you can look in the report, stated that uh, he only had one, one clue. Um, Corey then blamed it on his boots and started to laugh because the situation he's he's in my my dying wife being put in a hel helicopter is um 
you know, was a very uh, lighthearted and funny situation to Corey and Tarif, who both treated uh, the scene, the the crime scene, um, as if uh, they were in a locker room or had uh, run into each other at the grocery store. That that um, detail just, I don't even know how to unpack that detail at per, on a personal level, just considering that you could do something so, so heinous and then, and it really be because of your own choices. And then to have that type of reaction is just, it, it's beyond me. Um, it was just par, par for the, for, for the course on everything that has happened. So after, um, he completed that, that test, uh, Tarif asked him to take a, um, portable breath breathalyzer in which, um, Corey blew into it and Tarif never shows what the score is on his body cam. He blows into it, makes mention numerous times that, um, it's still going up from a certain point. He was still under the legal limit, which is 0 0.08, but he makes mention numerous times, this is where you're at. He never tells him what his score is. He just shows him what the score is and says, you're going up from here. You must have drank a lot last last night. Uh, never shows the body, body camera at all. Never really tells Corey what he, what he blew, just shows that to him. Now, very odd and very, very suspect. Yes. So um, with that, later shown in, in his reports, and then he, he later makes mention of this to um, another officer and to his uh, superiors, which he called numerous times on scene, which is also odd as a, um, a trooper with over 10 years of experience. I don't know what you have to call your uh, su supervisor three, four, four times. Corey blew a 0 0.06. Okay. That's, that's, that's what he blew on the portable breathalyzer test. Everything that I've read, everything that I've researched on, on the internet says it is scientifically impossible for a person to have zero clues on the horizontal gaze test and blow a 0 0.06 into a breathalyzer. Now, now mind you, that breathalyzer occurred almost an hour after he hit us. So he blew a 0 0.06 almost an hour after he killed my wife. Any competent law enforcement officer would take that time into consideration and go, they were hit about 745, um, and it's almost an hour later, and this man is just blown a point zero six. He was probably legally at a point zero eight when he when he hit them, which would mean that that's an automatic D, DWI, or should be. Correct. Um, at least we should probably take him in to go get a blood sample. Not once did Tarif Al-Khatib ask Corey for a blood sample. In fact, another trooper on scene, and this is all captured on body camera, asked Tarif, are we going to get blood? Tarif's response was no. All that, referring to the alcohol that's, that was in his blood, the, um, you know, the, the score on the portable breathalyzer test, all that was from last night. Not that he passed his field sobriety tests, not 
Not that I don't think he's intoxicated. No, all that was from last night. It doesn't matter when it's from. He still created this situation, no matter what day it was. You are 100% (laughs) correct. Uh, Residual alcohol in your system from the night before does not clear you whatsoever. I mean, if Um, if I go get drunk tomorrow and commit a crime today while I'm still intoxicated this morning, I'm still going to be liable for that crime that... I was intoxicated from yesterday doing, I mean, that, that is just mind blowing. (laughs) You are correct. You are absolutely correct. Um, so at that, that point, um, (laughs) Tarif, they, um, go to Corey's truck. There's a, there's a cup that has a substance in it. That's, that's not tested for alcohol at all. Um, it's, it's poured out. They allow Corey, with their backs turned for about 15 seconds, to get whatever he wants out of his truck. And then huh, um, Tarif asks him if he has any weapons in his vehicle. And he says, I have two handguns. Tarif asks him, are they loaded? And Corey makes a, a joke and says, well, they wouldn't, wouldn't do any good if, if they weren't loaded. And they all have a big laugh. Um, which is the second time that uh, Corey laughs. And I want to make sure that you're aware of this. Not once did Corey ask how Katie was doing. Not one time. Not one time. Uh, Not one time did he show any emotion. Um, If I was driving down the road and I just hit two people and I got one that's just been loaded up in an ambulance going to the ICU and I've got a helicopter that is landing in a field and transporting somebody that I seriously injured or killed. Um, I'm going to be a complete wreck. So after he hit you and law enforcement arrives and they pretend to be looking into this situation, it seems like. I, I mean, I, I, I think pre- pretend is even a strong word. Um, yeah, it sounds that way. It, so, it even sounds like they tried to not let things be seen. And now I could be jumping ahead of myself here and I need to look even further into some of the, the things in this case. But it appears that maybe they were even trying to hide certain things from the body cam. Um, I believe they did a very good job at um, not doing their job and not not doing it well. Um there's been many times where I thought maybe this was just com- complacency that um, Tarif showed up on scene and just thought it was a, you know, a horrible accident and um, don't see how he could have possibly come to that conclusion. You've got a man that traveled three tenths of a mile blind uh, with a uh, strong smell of alcohol coming from his breath, crossed over the roadway, told you that he shouldn't have been driving, didn't know what side of the road he was on, thought he hit a telephone pole, um, and then again blows a point zero six fifty minutes after. Well, he uh, didn't even have the wherewithal to wipe off his windshield. He could have. St- he should have stopped and even said, "I probably shouldn't have have drove." All that right there. I don't know it's of a, a single competent officer that would have all that information thrown at them 
and go, well, well, this was just, just an accident. It was not, it was clear recklessness. And so Corey going back to the handguns, Tarif then instructed Corey to go into his vehicle and retrieve the loaded handguns. Um, what? What officer do you know would ask somebody who, you know, two two years ago last week or whatnot, the man committed a crime and the man has alcohol in his system, um, ask him to retrieve the loaded handguns and bring them to him. That is beyond any protocol ever. And the the only reason why I think that that happened is because um, they had a very familiar relationship. We've uncovered pictures of the families hanging out on um, Halloween and Christmas just months before Katie was killed. So there is a very familiar um, relationship. So um, at that point... um, it's time to take, or it's it's time for, I guess, Corey to, to leave. Um, Tarif stated that, uh, you know, I guess there's, you know, we're, we're, we're done here. Do you have somebody to come pick you up? And he said, oh, I can get my mom to come pick me up. Or he can just walk home. He lives two-tenths of a mile down the road. Um, Tarif then said, oh, I'll, I'll take you. And Corey, Corey declined, and Tarif insisted. Um, at which point Tarif loads Corey Foster up in his cruiser uh, with his two loaded handguns and then proceeds to turn off all of the recording devices um, that he had, his body camera and the audio-visual recording device in his um, cruiser, and then goes to take Corey home, which, uh, been told by DPS, is a big deviation in uh, standard operating pr- procedure. Uh, you have anybody in that vehicle, um, you have to have that, you know, you have to have that recorded. Also, um, DPS is not a taxi service. DPS does not give rides. But I, I guess if you're a friend of a trooper and that trooper basically just lets you get away with murder, then um, what's what's a ride amongst two friends, right? So... Um. And there's never been any type of internal review regarding this or there's an ongoing one right, right now. Um, and how long has that been ongoing? Six months. Okay. Okay. Not Um, not as bad. I won't, I won't get too hot yet. They haven't found enough evidence right now from what I've been told to, um, formally reprimand him, but it's, the DPS reviews the DPS. So this is not like an outside agency that reviews Texas Department of Public Safety. Uh, they, they have an internal affairs division that collects all the evidence and then basically get, gives it back to Therese's chain of command. Okay, that was what I was more referring to, whether there's been an internal review through the police department of this case. There... Is it it is still ongoing, but they have not um, they have not made a formal reprimand of Tarif yet. We went down to Austin two or three weeks ago um, and met with D- DPS, and uh, they're looking back into um, our official complaint against Tarif. So, okay. So 
Tarif drops Corey off at his house and comes back on, on scene. And um, there were two other troopers there that day, uh, David Taylor and Jack Hill. And um, they, like I said before, when the, when the scene was treated like uh, these were just a bunch of buddies that met up at the beer store or, you know, at the grocery store or something like that, that's exactly what it turned into. Um, they laughed about us being neighbors. Um, Tarif went on and was very braggadocious about uh, the size of Corey's house. Um, when was this? A minute after he dropped off Corey. Um, <laughs> one trooper starts to make jokes about uh, Katie's clothes. Um, she had, I guess, put some body spray on. And he was saying that um, those clothes are pretty stout. She must have bathed in body spray. Another trooper makes a joke about um, uh, walking alongside the road, getting hit and collecting insurance money. Um, they joke about how fast Corey was going. Um, and he, Tarif uh, said that um, Corey said he was only going 15 miles per hour. And another trooper laughed and said, bullshit, more, more like 50. Funny how that never made it into the report, though. Funny how speeding never made it into the report. In fact, Tarif told me that he thought he was going 30. Seems and, like a lot of things didn't make it into the report. No. And I'm, um, I am not a small person. And that truck was going very fast. And it threw me 70 feet. That's what? not going to happen. It, when, when they hit us, yeah. When, when we both were, were hit, uh, Katie was thrown 70 feet. And I was thrown 70 feet as well into the golf course. And again, uh, we were hit so hard that, uh, we were knocked out of our, our shoes. So, um, it's just horrendous. I mean, and then for them to treat it the way that they have, I mean, the, the way that they did that day, I, I just can't even, I, I can't even understand how, where, where the humanity is in, in any of this. There was absolutely none. Um, Corey, when he was on, on the phone with his su supervisor, uh, which again, he called two, two, two or three times. Um, he told his supervisor that Katie just whacked her head real good. Okay. Um, after he came back from dropping um, Corey Foster off, going to use some coarse language if you're if you're fine with that oh no you're fine you you are uh, i was a chef for 15 years you are all good <laughs> uh he told the other troopers man he knocked the fucking shit out of her dude um that sure as hell didn't make it into to the report Tarif alcatib covered for a family friend and that family friend uh for the days and weeks after uh drove past our house because we live on a dead end street uh, in the truck uh, that still had the dent on the hood from where my wife's head had, had hit uh, up and down our street, up and down our street. Um, still going to the same bar that he was a bar fly at and um, has not faced any type of accountability whatsoever.
I believe that that you know we can we can actually see something happen here. We just have to keep at it. Um, I'm definitely going to dig into this. That's all that we're asking. Um, we're we're asking for justice and we're asking for accountability. Uh, both of which have been denied to our family and to Katie. Absolutely. So, um, <laughs> where to even begin with Brett Smith in the district attorney's office? Um, so, after Katie was killed, um, I reached out to the district attorney's office. Um, got a call back from Brett Smith, wanted to know what the status of this was. Um, he said that he hasn't received, he had not received the uh, file yet from DPS. Um, and that I probably knew more than he did because he, again, he hasn't been presented with, with the information. So I said, okay, that, that seemed logical. Well, um, <laughs> About two months after, Katie's mom calls Brett Smith. Uh, she got his number on Facebook. He had his number on Facebook. He wasn't at the office. Your daughter gets killed in a horrific way. You don't care if it's somebody's cell phone. Somebody gives you a number, you call it. You want to know what's, what's going on. Uh, Brett Smith, that day and every day thereafter, has treated Katie's mother with contempt and um, has been absolutely horrible to her. He told her you should never call an elected official on their cell phone. He is recovering from hip surgery, has no clue who Katie is, which contradicts what he told me, told me that he knew about the case, but hadn't had the information pre presented to him yet. And that, you know, they'll basically get to it when they, when they get to it. Right. So um, we don't have a voice. Uh, we, we rely on social media. We rely on uh, podcasts like your podcast and all of the other podcasts that we've uh, been fortunate and blessed enough to be on. Um, we don't have a platform. So social media is the only platform that we have. And um, Rhonda took to social media and she put, she put Brett's number she put Brett's number out there. She put the number to DA's office out there. And um, we all were very hypercritical of Brett and his office um, for the way that he treated Rhonda and the way it appeared that nothing was happening. It had been almost two months. Nothing. Okay. Um, that's unacceptable. As a victim myself and now a widower, I want to know what's going on. This guy's driving up and down my street every single day. Why isn't he behind bars? What's going on? So Brett then calls me two more times. And instead of talking about the case and what his office is going to do to bring justice and accountability for the death of my wife, um, he throws a tantrum each time about how he's being portrayed on social media, um, which still to this day, I, I lost my wife. I was a foot away from losing my life as well. 
uh, my kids would have been without um, a mother and father, yet you want to talk about how you are being um, unfairly characterized on social media. Uh, that is our district attorney in Grayson County, Brett Smith. Um, so we finally get a meeting with, with Brett. And that was, I believe, in July, roughly about three three months after. And um, it was myself, Katie's mother, Katie's father, one of Katie's brothers, Brett Smith, and two other prosecutors with the Grayson County District Attorney's Office. Um, I started out the meeting by showing pictures of Katie. Um, if I'm going to have a meeting about Katie and she's not going to be there, I want them to know who she was. Um, the other two prosecutors were very professional. They looked at the pictures. Um, they were very considerate and kind. Uh, Brett acted like a narcissistic juvenile and wouldn't look at the pictures, said he's seen everything he needs to see on so social media, uh, was very belligerent. Um, and then went on again for the third time in four meetings to talk about social media and how he's being portrayed on it to Katie's mom, um, which you're a district attorney. Um, you need to be focused on doing your job and not being focused on, um, <laughs> you know, if people like you or not on so social media. Um, you, you, you don't need to be worried about your, um, uh, you know, your, your ability, your Q score or whatever it's called, uh, for reelection right now. You've got a victim, you've got a family that wants, um, answers. And, um, that's all he, he was worried about during that meeting. He told us to quote, call off our jihad told us to call off our jihad on so, social media and started to laugh. Um, the other two prosecutors and me and my family uh, just, uh, I don't know how you take something like, like, like that um, caught us all off guard, caught the other two prosecutors off guard. Uh, but I, I can't even with that. But, it, but again, that is our Grayson County district attorney, Brett Smith. I then was uh, introduced at a later date and had two meetings with Carrie Ashmore, who's the first assistant district attorney um, for Brett Smith. Carrie Ashmore and Nathan Young were the two prosecutors with the Grayson County District Attorney's Office that presented this case in front of a grand jury on August 19th, 2020. Going back to that meeting with Brett, and I, I, I don't want to leave, leave this out, Brett also makes the statement that missteps were made by Tarif Alkatib, who we would come to find out is um, Brett's wife's cousin's stepson. Um, so a Blues family con connection there. Um, missteps were made by Tarif and that it was a bad investigation. Um, he then goes on to talk about um, other um, he he bashes law enforcement for a little bit in that meeting. He he goes on to, to talk about uh, the, the small towns we have in Grayson County and how uh, the police departments 
can't put together one decent um, report. Um, so again, that's our dis disc attorney that, um, you know, bashes law enforcement um, in front of a victim and victim's family, but, um, you know, is uh, quite the opposite in public. Um, not a very good leadership trait to have. So makes mention of Tarif not doing a good job. Uh, Tarif made missteps. Didn't know why Tarif didn't get blood. Tarif should have gotten blood and he was perplexed and said, I, I don't know what to tell you. He should have, he should have gotten blood. Now we're at the grand jury. Carrie Ashmore presents this to the grand jury. Um, I was able to testify. Tarif Al-Khatib testified. And there is the third party consultant that testified. Um, a grand jury in Texas is comprised of, of 12. Okay. Uh, we only had 10 that day. So one didn't show up. Another recused himself. That left us with 10. There has to be nine votes in order for an indictment to take. Kerry comes out and tells me that the grand jury um, was not going to move forward with an indictment. Uh, that blew my mind. Could not understand how we had all this evidence and yet um, could not get an indictment. Um, that was on a Tuesday, okay? And um, there was a lot of evidence that the DA's office did not provide that first grand jury. So that was a Tuesday. That Sunday, uh, Carrie Ashmore and Nathan Young are at Carrie Ashmore's house. Carrie Ashmore is also married to Kelly Ashmore, who is the district clerk uh, who controls the jury pool, to which Carrie had no clue why alternates weren't put in there. Um, so just a, just a complete mishandling of the jury pool by our district clerk, um, Kelly Ashmore. <clears throat> and so they decide to have a party over at Carrie's house. Uh, burgers and beer is uh, what they had put on so social media. And um, at that party, in, in the pictures, um, they had an impaneled grand juror. Um, one of the grand jurors that was on the grand jury that Carrie Ashmore presented to, um, he was at that pool party, and he continued to serve on the grand jury uh, multiple times after that party. And also they would have, uh, from what I've believe I've been told, um, they were very social to, together during this, this time period as well. Um, going over to I believe Carrie's house, um, during, during the week and having dinner. Um, now I'm going to ask you, you a question. Um, you have prosecutors that are partying with, grand jurors they are presenting cases to does that seem ethical and does that promote impartiality at all it's enraging no no i mean these these prosecutors are up there getting indictments that <laughs> um change people's lives and you want it to be as impartial as possible um Having a pool party and hanging out during the week, going over to each other's houses, um, 
that does not scream impartial to me at all. That to, to me shows that there's a very strong bias. And I, and I guess that's how the Grayson County district attorney's office uh, gets in indictments. We wine and dine um, in panel grand grand jurors. So, um, so that was on the Sunday. Now that next Monday or Tuesday, I think I'd mentioned that there was a third party that recreated um, that 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 crash because DPS did not perform a uh, crash investigation. Correct. That report was finalized roughly a week later. So the grand jury did not get the final report in their hands from the expert that Grayson County hired. That report is very damning on Corey Foster. Very oh, damning. Wow. I believe that if the grand jury had that report, had that report in their hands, the complete report dated, um, I believe that was the 25th. So six days after. So it was that Monday when Carrie Ashmore got that re report. So, um, all right. So the grand jury, no build our case. Um, then that Sunday, um, Carrie Ashmore has a party at his house with uh, one of the impanel grand jurors and um, continues to do so. And uh, that grand jury continues to serve on the grand jury for uh, a couple months after. Um, they have a very familiar relationship. They're, they're friends, the grand jurors over at Carrie's house, uh, eating dinner during, during the week. And um, <laughs> that's how um, that's how prosecution works in Grayson County. So August nineteenth is when the grand jury uh, convened, and then the report, the finalized report from the third party that Grayson County hired, uh, was dated August twenty fifth. So six days after. So that grand jury did not have that report in their hands, which again was very damning against Corey Foster. Very damning. And we have no clue what was presented to the grand jury because that's that's secret. And phone records. They never got Corey's phone records. Um, Brett Smith and um, Carrie Ashmore told me at least on two occasions that they were going to get his phone records, even knew what cell carrier he had, I guess, based upon the prefix. I don't know, but they knew his cell phone carrier and they were going to request those records. And I guess just never got around to it. Um, so, so through the civil discovery process, uh, we got his cell phone records um, put together a timeline. Um, he dialed a number 31 seconds before he called 911. Okay. That number was to a friend's mother's house where he was going to pick up uh, some guys to go do some work. Okay. And the only plausible timeline that makes sense is that he was dialing the number as he hit us, uh, got out heard me yelling for somebody to call the police, still had his phone in his hand, ended the call and dialed 911. Okay. So he was, um, distracted driving and. Oh, wow. In the report, DPS asked him, what did you do when you realized that, that you hit them? He said, I immediately called 911, not 
hey, I called these people that I was going to go meet. Then I called 911. He said he immediately called 911. Oh, wow. So 18 months later, we get this in information. And I asked the DA's office, why didn't you get this? And uh, they put the blame on me, saying that, well, you know, you wanted to go through with the um, with with the grand jury. And, uh, you know, you wanted this done. So we, we presented this quickly because that's what you wanted. You're supposed to be the attorneys. I'm not an attorney. I'm not a prosecutor. I've never been in trouble with the law. I'm not sure how this works. For all I know, they already had the phone records. I had not the slightest clue. I, I Wow. I they, I, it's their investigation. I, I don't know. So we gave that information to the Grayson County District Attorney's Office. They reviewed it, and I get a call one day at 4.30 p.m. from Carrie Ashmore, and we had been very hypercritical still of the DA's office. Um, he called me and said, hey, we've reviewed these phone records, and we're going to put these phone records in front of a grand jury tomorrow. And I said, okay, well, do I need to be there? Because this is a new grand jury. It's been 18 months. There's probably been two two grand juries um, since, you know, because I, I believe you serve on a grand jury for, you know, three or six months. And so they keep on, you know, it's new, it's new people who are not familiar with this case whatsoever. Um, he goes, no, we're just going to present, you know, parts, parts of the case and the phone record to see if the grand jury wants to move forward. Uh, we ended the call. I thought about it. That did not seem right. Why, why is he calling me at 4.30 the day, the, the day before? Uh, what's he going to present? Why am I not allowed to be a witness? I was basically the only witness there. You know, I got to testify in front of the first grand jury. Why not in front of this, this next one? So I tried to call back Kerry's office. Um, he wouldn't take my call. And then I sent him a text message because I, I have his number from the, the first time, um, you know, this this went through his, his office. And um, he just said that, you know, he didn't really have time to talk to me, but I but I could text him again. Um, you know, uh, spectacular professionalism from uh, Grayson County District Attorney's Office. Uh, and that comes from the top down. So it, it bleeds from Brett over to Kerry. And so um, I asked Kerry. You know, what's going to be presented? Are you going to represent this whole case to this new grand jury? Are you or are you, are you just going to present some kind of uh, bastardized, abridged version of what happened? Uh, because told him, I'm, I'm not OK with that. You know, I want to be able to testify. I want the expert to be able to testify. I want the crash report from the third party uh, expert to be presented to the grand jury. And I want the grand jury to see the body camera footage. I want them to watch all of it. Um, and he basically told me that, um, you know, he's just going to present the cell, cell phone records. And then if the grand jury wants any other information, then he'll, he'll provide that. And so I, that did not sit well with me. I waited till six in the morning I called the um, district attorney's office and said that um, Katie's mother, Rhonda Dale, and I will be there in the morning, you know, in about two hours. And we want to talk to you guys before this gets put in front of a grand jury. Want to talk to you guys. Want to know what's going on. 
we get there before the grand jury gets there. The grand jury, uh, the grand jury members are passing us going into the grand jury room. Uh, Brent Smith and Carrie Ashmore would not take our meeting. Would not. Carrie presented this to the grand jury again, uh, not knowing what he presented and came out and told us that it's in the grand jury's hands. We questioned him, why wouldn't you meet with us? And he basically said that it was up to Brett, you know, and um, we weren't going to take a meeting. And when we questioned him, he looked at Rhonda and said, I don't have to explain myself to you. I'm damn good at my job. Left, came back out and said the grand jury um, is not going to move forward with this. We have not gotten an impartial, full and fair grand jury presentation um, ever. And it's been presented twice. Half of it was presented the first time and half of it was presented the second time. That's not, that's not justice. That's, that's not how um, our system is supposed to work. And again, going back to my, my first statement, complete systematic failure by the Grayson County District Attorney's Office multiple times over. Wow. It's, I mean, it, it's just the whole county. It absolutely is. Um, you know, we've done everything we can to try to shed light on this. We, we actually um, went in with another family, uh, the Carneys, and um, got a law passed in in texas pardon me in one session uh we got a bill passed which is now a law in, in the state of texas um house bill 558 um colton's law and the spirit of the law is that any motorist that either hits or kills a pedestrian is subject to a mandatory blood test um, and it should well, not I think be that's left, a great law should not be left up to the officer. Um, 99.9% .9 of officers are going to do the right thing, but you got the 0.01%, the, uh, Tarif al of the law enforcement community that will do their buddy a solid. Well, you were able to join up with another family you said and, and get that yes, done. Yes. They, they, they had a, a case where their son, he was walking to work. Um, alongside the highway, I believe, and a motorist um, hit him at a very high rate of speed, and he um, uh, was killed in instantly. And um, when they asked the officer if they did a um, breathalyzer or blood test on the man, the officer's response was, no, it was 7.30 in the morning. No one's drunk at 7.30 in the morning. Um, oh, really? That cause that family to not want this to happen to another family, which is the same reason why uh, we decided to, um, you know, help the Carnies in their fight for, for justice. And we don't want this to happen to another family. I don't want a, another family left with nothing but questions and all they want are answers. Um, exactly. That yeah. is a horrible spot to be in. And that's where we've been in limbo for um over two years and um we're not gonna stop we're gonna keep pressing we're gonna make sure that brett smith is no longer the district attorney of grayson county 
Um, you can check on our Facebook page. We've already put signs up on billboards, um, help, help wanted signs for a, a new district attorney for Grayson County. After everything that I've seen and then everything that I've kind of looped together after talking to you during this call, I definitely see why you're doing the civil suit. Um, I, I at first thought it might've been slightly premature, but no, I think you're right. I, I think that you're doing the best thing here. We'll, we'll just see what we can do. We'll see how much noise we can kick up. And as I start to dig into this, I'll just stay in touch with you. If I have questions or if I have ideas, um, I'll throw them out there and we'll see what, what we could possibly get done. Yes, ma'am. Yes, ma'am. I very much appreciate it. I appreciate your time. Like, like I said, I'm an open book. So anything that, that you have, um, any questions, you need any more in, information, anything at all. Um, awesome. And again, I very much appreciate uh, you opening up your platform and providing me and my family with a voice um, so that we can shed light on what's going on here. So thank you so much. No problem. And I appreciate you reaching out and, and even to others. Um, real quick, have you gotten a good response back with reaching out to people and getting them to cover this as well? Yes. Yes. No, we've, we've been on sub, several pod, podcasts and um, every single one helps. Every single one, um, you know, is, is the ability for just another set of eyes to see what has hap happened here. Um, it allows people to follow what we're doing on Facebook. And when we have calls to, to action, um, I mean, numbers help. You know, yeah, absolutely. When, when, when it's, you know, time to email time, time to make phone calls. Uh, everybody has been very, um, supportive and very active. And, um, that's, I, I'm very, very thank, thankful. Uh, there, if, if there's one thing that we've, we've never been without it's support. We've always had support. Uh, you know, first it was our community you know, rallying around our, our family and um, um, being there for us. Um, you know, Katie's school, you know, where, where she, she taught at, friends and family, um, people that I've never met before, uh, just supporting us. And then as we've gone forward and have been vocal and um, have fought for justice and continue to fight, fight for justice and seek justice, um, pe people from all over have reached out and it just lets us know that we're continuing to do the right thing um, and that we're not going to stop. Awesome. That that's, and that's all you possibly can do. And that's so much more than, you know, people get overwhelmed with stuff like this. It's amazing that you're staying focused and staying on track with it and trying to see something happen this man deserves to pay for what he's done and I stand behind you on that fully. So we're going to do whatever we can to help. We'll, we'll help you. We'll help Katie, help your kids and your family to hopefully get some kind of answers here. Um, you know, I don't, I don't like to say a lot of people say closure. I don't really think there is closure in a situation like this. No. Um, 
you you and your kids will forever and and Katie's parents and you know everybody closest will forever feel this and there's no taking that away but Corey deserves to answer for this and so does Grayson County this is just they have to they they have to answer for these things I could not agree with 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 you more um and injustice to one of us is an injustice to all of us. Um, if it can happen to me and to my family and to Katie, um, it can happen to you. It can happen to somebody listening to your to your pod, podcast. Exactly, and, and not only that, but in a in in a variety of different situations. You know, sure. maybe somebody's thinking, "Well, I don't I I don't go for walks on the side of the road." Well, that doesn't matter. It doesn't, there will be a situation where if they can use this type of power, where it protects one of them, that's, that's all that is. And, and you had, there's, you just, you cannot allow for that. And we, we are supposedly a country that is, that is built on freedom and rights and our voice being heard. So we're going to make sure that they hear us real loud. You know, I, I think it's our, our duty to stand stand up. You know, there there is nothing that I can do or anybody can do to bring Katie back. You know, she's 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 gone. She is forever gone. There is nothing that we can do to bring her back. But what we can do is again, we can do our best to make sure that something like this doesn't happen to another family, or we can make sure that those that break laws are held accountable and those that are supposed to hold people that break laws accountable we hold them accountable as well for not doing their their job so the next time that there's a uh, you know someone gets gets in their their car might have had too much to drink um they'll think think twice a uh trooper like Tarif Al-Khatib that's going to do his buddy a solid will think twice that district attorney or that prosecutor that um, doesn't really want to spend their time on a case or is not going to, uh, you know, afford, um, you know, victims uh, their day in court that's going to pass over a case, they're going to think twice. They're going to do their job. Um, I believe that's the only thing that we can possibly do now. And, you know, if that's what my family has to do from now until – um, you know, there, there comes, comes a point where we've done all we can, can do. Um, I, I'm, I'm going to be here and I'm, and I'm going to fight and I'm going to keep fighting and my, my family and, uh, you know, the community that backs us, uh, they feel the same way. And the amount of people that, that will help in the future, um, just by doing that is, is probably a lot more than you realize, or maybe just a lot more than other people realize. I think you realize you're you're in this. You get it. Um, we need to get the other people who don't realize to get it and to also get loud and and support this, especially people who are local. You know, local local people have got to realize what is going on in their own communities. Thank you for listening and supporting Justice for Katie Palmer. We'll be back soon with part two of this episode where we will review the data and the road to justice for Katie Palmer.